Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Internet Dragons TV. In this episode, we're actually two-manning with myself and Joe because we're talking about what, at least to me, has definitely become my favorite new game franchise. Uh, Dead Space was in the running, but uh, that's kind of tripped a bit in near the finish line here. But we're, of course, talking about Assassin's Creed. And unfortunately, Roger's not joining us uh, on this cast because while he owns every single one of the games, I don't think he's played one yet. <laughs> I, I think that is entirely accurate. I really don't think he has actually played one. He was meaning to though. I, they they made steam for him, clearly. <laughs> just <laughs> just the the siren call of sales. He he is completely helpless. And hey, that's that's how Gabe's putting his kids through college, I guess. I know. I'm waiting to see if Roger is going to go ahead and buy that new uh, Steam console. I think he put all of his games that'll never play on it. <laughs> I think it would be perfect. That's right, I'm talking about you, old man. Bring it. <laughs> All right, anyway, back to topic. Yes, we're talking about Assassin's Creed, uh, specifically Assassin's Creed 3, which came out last year, but we'll, we'll be touching both in the past and in the future, uh, because that's why I decided to uh, bring this together, is we got some great news last week about the game that uh, I know has me very interested. What about you? Uh, yeah, seeing that trailer hit for the first time, it excited me in very interesting and, and scary ways. Mm -hmm. So what is it exactly about Assassin's Creed that you enjoy so much, the franchise as a whole? It has very solid storytelling. Like, that's one of the key, the, the key things for any franchise that has to hold my attention, right? And Assassin's Creed has done that for the most part. Uh, it's a compelling story, and it also sings in in a weird way to my history major uh, aspect, because a lot of people don't know that I dual majored architecture and history. Uh, I know, come a weird way from that. Playing on designing the Parthenon there, tough guy? <laughs> if you, you never know. But it was always interesting to me to see a lot of these... A lot of things, particularly, believe it or not, about like the Templars and things like that, and what they were to history. And it was always it was always something I was interested in. It was always something that I, I whenever I was doing European stuff, uh, that I sort of paid attention to, and and was always I was that geeky kid that had that that romanticized idea of knights and and whatnot. But seeing Assassin's Creed take that in a completely different direction. But while at the same time staying, believe it or not, mostly historically accurate for the surrounding events is phenomenal because a lot of games don't do that. A lot of games kind of eschew any sort of reality for whatever they have to substitute their own world into. But the Assassin's Creed universe doesn't. It's all taking it all took place in our time stream, which is slightly different things happening or slightly different events occurring. Uh, in the background or underneath so it's kind of cool to see that it's always been it always drew me into the series as a result see for me it's similar though not so much the the actual historical aspects i've always been a huge fan of you know the various conspiracy theories and just all the crazy crackpot stuff like you see with you know the templars and the assassins here and mm -hmm. not that i put any stock into those crazy theories I just love hearing about them. And, you know, the, the weirder it is, but you dig down and at its core, every single one of those crazy theories is based on something true. And that's where, you know, those types of things really interest me. And then as we saw the 
series play out and they started bringing in you know like the uh the ancient race you know and stuff like that where mm-hmm. it's sa- same thing i love I, I love watching like the ancient aliens show on tv just because it's so completely weird completely out there completely ludicrous but there are so many things that are based in fact that are kind of too weird to be true on their own and bringing all that together into a game series and then you know adding cool characters and fun gameplay on top of that that is really you know what cemented this game for me it's it's like the assassin the, the assassin's creed nothing is true everything is permitted ubisoft permitted their designers to do anything they wanted in these games yep. and it's so over the top so frequently but it works so well as a whole and that's sort of an important thing to note, too, is the freedom that the developers had to pursue the project really, really shown through in a lot of the games because they weren't, you know, super strict on what they could and couldn't have. And so we got some very unique gameplay, very unique characters, very unique voicing of characters and, and those unique twists, which are just absolutely awesome. So coming through the franchise, uh, you know, we started off in the Middle East. Moved into Italy, and of course, as much as people joked about how they were just rehashing Assassin's Creed 2 over and over again with the sequels, they actually made the game better each time as well, and made it interesting, and something that I know I had to play, even though I I, I always had this this sort of rule for myself that I would never buy a game series that came out with a new iteration every year. And Assassin's Creed was so good. It got me to break my own rule in that regard. Like even like when Brotherhood came out, I was like, Oh, you know, I'll play it, but I'll pick it up for cheap. I had it a month later. (laughs) Revelations Mm -hmm. came out. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm seriously not going to spend $60 on this game right away. Oh, it comes with a free t-shirt. Okay. I'm in. (laughs) It didn't take a whole lot of convincing for me to jump into these games. Well, and that speaks to the the caliber of the game too. Like, I mean, me, I had a similar rule, but again, this is a series that made me throw it out the window after getting my hands on Assassin's Creed Two and realizing, like, I was like, "Damn, okay, well, this this is good. Okay, then, well, I'm done." And just I was there at the midnight release for every single other one set, that came set out. Set up that automatic sixty dollars deduction in your bank account every year. Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. So when Assassin's Creed Three starts off. We find the story in a really interesting place because over the course of the previous four games, we've seen Desmond, the modern day assassin, you know, learning about his history, learning about the assassins and searching for a way to save the world from its huge catastrophe in 2012. Glad we dodged that bullet. (laughs) And it leads them to this cave with this crazy ancient technology. Ah, the cave in Turin, New York, which is not too far away from me, actually. (laughs) I, I believe you, and that that's that's what's so great. Again, takes takes that nugget of truth and just expands upon it in great, fantastic ways. And so, of course, to find the clues they need to get this ancient machine up and running that's going to save everybody, got to dive back into Connor's memories again. Connor, jeez, Desmond's memories again. Ah. Well, and this time we're not, Sorry. you know, we're not going back to the Renaissance. We're actually going back to the American Revolution, which on its own is such a fascinating time period to be in. And Ubisoft went and threw us another one of their fun little twists. Every Assassin's Creed game has had this weird twist nobody saw coming, but it worked so well for the game. And leading up to this, we saw, you know, all all the press was about, you know, you're playing as Connor, you know, this this Native American character and this and that. And yet we start off as this English dandy named Haytham Kenway, who completely stole the game for me. 
he was a very, very interesting character. And, and his opening sequence was cool, too, because what's the most important thing he does right at the very beginning? Um, there are several. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, he murders an assassin at the London mm-hmm. Royal Opera House, right? And it sort of like sets the tone for his character because it's like, here's this dandy, but holy shit, he's actually a badass. You wouldn't often see, you know, a a British nobleman climbing across the opera house. And like that whole thing was like so ridiculous. I'm like, this dude's like any all anybody has to do is look up. And then I realize, well, it's England. They don't look up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, England. guinea pigs of the, the social world but of course uh haytham bring, makes his way over to the new world in the west in in america and he starts playing out you know his his role there of trying to find the cave where desmond now finds himself and gathering his allies and all throughout this whole opening sequence by the way uh this cast is going to be completely full of spoilers so this is this oh, yeah. is your last chance <laughs> game's been out long enough if you if this is spoilers to you by now either you don't love the series and you had no intention of playing or you're roger (laughs) so things just seemed a little weird and i i knew the twist was coming like i saw it coming but i was like there's no way they could actually do this and yet they pulled it off and revealed that the whole time haytham was not an assassin despite his use of a hidden blade he is actually an agent of the templars and it was so great you know when the game first came out seeing everybody who didn't see it coming freaking out over the plot twist it was great stuff well and that's the cool thing about that right because it's not something you expect you know the templars to do you don't expect them to uh, employ agents of you know that type of fighting at all you don't they're they're sort of the up to this point, they were sort of the the bruisers, right? They're sort of the guys that just kind of charge in. That's that's their thing, like victory through strength. Not this, which is really really intriguing. And not only that, but Haytham wasn't a bad guy. He was a very likable character, and we saw mm-hmm. throughout his mission, he was helping people along the way. the The whole reason he found the cave in the first place is because he rescued an entire tribe of the native people. So that in and of itself wasn't something we would have expected from a Templar and really set a different tone for the rest of the game. Well, especially when you consider that the Templars are painted as this giant evil controlling force from the past all the way up through the present. Yeah, it's it's not something I think anybody really kind of anticipated. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he has that such depth of character in the short time that you see him at the beginning was amazing. And I think that was also the game's biggest flaw is they made Haytham mm-hmm. such an amazing character and then took him out of the player's hands because uh, the tribe uh, Haytham saved, he ended up having a child with one of the women who would grow to be Connor, the actual main character of the game the, and the, the person we spend the most time in control of. And Connor is not a very interesting person. And there's been a lot of criticism on it, and it's absolutely true. But I think, at least for me, it worked because the events that were going on around Connor were so much more important than Connor himself. I think a a stronger personality would have kind of diminished from that, at least for my perspective. I disagree slightly. Um, it, it suffered from what I like to call Symphony of the Night Syndrome, where you start out uber-powerful and awesome, and then everything's taken away from you. And doing that to players, even especially now, can be incredibly jarring. And it is, if you're not prepared for it or didn't expect it, 
is quite jarring. But I also think that Connor did need a bit of a stronger personality, especially when you compare what we were coming through from Assassin's Creed 2. Even Assassin's Creed 1, Altair had a stronger personality than Connor, in my opinion. And I understand that the events were important, but it shouldn't diminish from the character's role in those events. And part of that role in those events hinges on the character being interesting. Because otherwise, what the hell do you care? I can buy that. Uh, like I said, it's 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 a point of contention, but I've seen so many people who just completely throw away Connor as worthless, where it, I, I, I kind of have trouble putting my finger on it. Like, he, he, he could have been fleshed out a bit more, but I didn't completely hate that he wasn't. Fair enough. I can see that. So, with this new setting and this new character who now has uh, all this upbringing as, you know, an American Indian and has all, all of that characterization behind him, we got some interesting new gameplay elements out of it, and that is brilliantly explored through the entire frontier they've set up, which was easily my favorite part of the game, was just running around that forest. I spent hours, days, just leaping through the trees, hunting down animals, you know, stalking prey through through the bush, and, you know, taking them out with a well with a well-placed arrow or even, you know, my assassin's blade. I I loved how they melded that aspect of the of the character in with the series core gameplay well it was also very important too because we're going from um and this is something that a lot of people are concerned about you're going from the renaissance in in europe where there's a lot of these old large buildings and a lot of movement takes place there and you're looking at colonial america colonial america didn't really have that same sort of of landscape so when you're changing up the gameplay that much you need to add sort of that fluid element and his movement and his hunting and basically how he was in the forest was sort of that replacement for it almost and it was very very engaging and to my support well i shouldn't even say to my surprise i should have expected it by now was incredibly well done and incredibly fluid like the controls were very very tight and i thought that was really really well done on their part See, and that's one thing i've seen a lot of people criticizing about the game is that the controls were simplified from previous versions you know you didn't have to hold down three buttons to free run anymore you know you didn't have to master the tech and claw maneuver in order to actually be effective in combat it, it was much simpler they they got rid of some unnecessary key bindings and it flowed so much better and like oh they're making it easier they're making it you know more for casuals i'm like but I've always been of the the belief that, at least in these games, the combat should be simple and easy and fun because the characters you're portraying have that much more skill than their opponents. It's just like in um, the Arkham Asylum games. You're friggin' Batman. Mm -hmm. If I'm Batman, I shouldn't have to do anything more than press one button to take down a thug. <laughs> like, so that that's the, the concept I've always had with Assassin's Creed is as simplistic as the system is, I've always felt that it worked for the series. Well... And that's the thing, too, right? Like, if you make it too complicated, people aren't going to play it because they can't play it. You simplify it too much, people are going to bitch about it. But the thing is, is, I think, at least in this game, I think they found a very good balance. I really, really do. Because the controls, while they were simplified, weren't to the point where I thought, you know, that didn't diminish my achievements in previous games as far as I'm concerned. It actually made me want to continue to play this game which is good because it wasn't frustrating. It wasn't, I'm throwing the controller up and throwing my hands in the air and, you know, screaming at the top of my lungs because I failed at this one crucial jump. 
like the timed run and Altair. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't have that same frustration, which I'm okay with. And it also didn't cause you to wear down your R1 button, which is handy. Yes. <laughs> but and, and the animation quality really lends itself to that. They they went above and beyond with the animations in this game, especially when you're running through those treetops. How seamlessly he moves from foothold to foothold, just to swinging on branches, placing his weight in one point and jumping off at another. It, it was so seamless. I loved it. They did a very good job with that. And like I said, it was that it was that seamless, that fluidity of motion that really sort of helped them out with uh, justifying the change in location. Mm-hmm. So, And it's a, it's a good point that you made about how they needed the forest to be that alive and that amazing compared to the towns. Because easily, Boston and New York are the worst cities we've had in Assassin's Creed game. Just because, like you said, Rome and, and you know... Ugh, God, all the other cities. <laughs> yeah, they any 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 European city compared to the New World at that point is. I mean, you're you're basically building hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of architecture and and building upon building upon building versus a bunch of wood cubes. You know, Boston <laughs> at the time. Yeah, it's basically well, we we cut down a forest and made a box. We're not gonna die this winter, yay! <laughs> New York. So I mean. Yeah, you, you can't you can't expect it to be anything other than that. And another really cool aspect that they, they put in with Assassin's Creed 3 was the changes to the stealth system. It wasn't so much about staying out of your enemy's line of sight anymore. There was a lot more dynamic ability. And this this game right here blows away, you know, anything Metal Gear Solid has ever done. Because you know, there's no there's no convoluted controls. There's there's no you know meters or, or anything. It's you're either hidden or you're not, and it it's so satisfying to be sneaking right next to an enemy that I'm stalking and having them not notice me there. It was so fun. The stealth gameplay was like you said, it was a top notch endeavor. Like it really was. It was more than I expected, which I think is kind of the important part, at least for me. Like I didn't expect it to be quite like that mm. which is cool and in connor's voyage he also came across another great character in the game and that is achilles davenport you know the the original colonial assassin and <laughs> again this this does kind of show just how bland connor is because he's been completely defined by the other characters in his life being Hatham and Achilles. And again, I loved Achilles. Here's this old black dude, you know, living on a plantation out in the middle of nowhere, which in and of itself in the 1700s is a pretty big deal. And he trains Connor in the ways of the assassin. And this was like Mr. Miyagi, you know, crossed with Obi-Wan Kenobi and any other <laughs> awesome character because I, I loved Achilles. Achilles was a very interesting character although i did halfway expect him at one point to say i'm too old for this shit <laughs> yeah just good yeah he had he had that sort of curmudgeonly thing about it every now and he then. even had a little bit of danny glover in him too mm-hmm. <laughs> but and here you had really the the big side project of Assassin's Creed 3, you know, whereas in Assassin's Creed Brotherhood and, you know, Revelations, you're you're building up your assassin forces and the villas and all the other stuff. Here you had to develop Achilles Homestead. And it was this great series of side quests. Did you actually do all of them? 
Uh, no, I actually did oh, not. <laughs> poor bastard. Because they were so fun. Like, it was taking the, the the traditional Assassin's Creed stuff, but you know, you're not running around leaping from rooftop rooftops murdering fools. No, you're you're hurting pigs. Or, you know <laughs> bring, bring the doctor, my wife is going into labor. You know, fun stuff like that. But each of the residents of the homestead were unique, fun, and interesting characters. And seeing the community build up around Connor and around Achilles, the homestead itself became an amazing character in the game. Which, that's kind of interesting. I might actually go back and, and play those. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, especially like after you finish you know, the story mode of the game, you unlock a couple additional mm-hmm. homestead missions that brings Achilles' storyline to a close. And it's, oh, it's really? very well worth it. You learn more about Achilles' past and... It, it, the old dude, you know, he finally kicks the bucket. So you, you see how that affects Connor, and it, it was very, very well done. Well, then, I know what my side project's going to be for the next couple of nights. <laughs> Record some footage while you're at it. <laughs> so the homestead was cool. Uh, of course, uh, in with the homestead, we had the absolute best part of the game. And you know what I'm talking about, right, Joe? I don't know. What are you talking about, Vince? The freaking ship. The the Aquila. The Aquila. Okay. How does Achilles own a ship? (laughs) Who the hell cares? It's Achilles who owns a ship named the Aquila. Fuck yeah. (laughs) And his his group of privateers, they're not pirates, sailing the coastline and defending, you know, the the American people from the British and the Templars. And this was magnificent. I remember when they first showed this off at E3. I was like, oh man, that's kind of cool. But I had feelings of like the space combat in Halo Reach, where they made such a big deal out of it, and it was a completely minor part of the game that probably would have been better off without it. But this was fantastic. The graphics were amazing. The gameplay was smooth. Like a sh- The ship actually steered like a ship. The The combat was was so fun, even though you're just looking over your shoulder and pressing a button. Well, here's an interesting thing about the ship. I don't know if you saw the complaints about this online. There were some people who were actually getting seasick <laughs> while playing on the ship. So that, that just speaks to the level of detail and attention that they gave to this part of the game. Because I, I personally have a friend who is who gets seasick very easily, but wanted to play the game and couldn't because he couldn't get past anything involving the ship. That's great. <laughs> and it, it was so fantastic and something I, I would not have expected from the game. It's certainly a lot better than, you know, tower defense like we saw in Revelations or, you know, right. checkbook management or, you know, any of the other fun mini games <laughs> they've thrown in there over the years. But uh, did you also do any of the, the crafting? Not really. Like, my, my when I played Assassin's Creed 3, and this is different from any other time I played any other ones, due to real-life time constraints, it was more main story, nothing else, do what mm-hmm. I can. The, the crafting was actually a pretty big misstep in, in my eyes. It, it was a completely convoluted process that you had to go through. Uh, gathering. I heard it was largely unimportant. Yeah, there, there were maybe three things that I actually got any use out of, and the rest was just decorating my house. So, I mean, there was supposedly a great way to make money in the game, was to craft goods and trade them, which was cool. But you don't use your money Exactly. The money in the game was completely useless, because... Yeah, unlike the previous games, you're not buying, like, you're not paying off people or things, or, like... <sighs> 
Okay, sorry. Not, not only that, there wasn't much in the way Go of ahead. equipment upgrades. The, the Assassin's Tomahawk you get at the beginning yeah. of the game was seriously the best weapon in the game. I, I think at mm-hmm. the very end, like after the main story, I ended up crafting a sword that was slightly better than the Tomahawk. But aside from that, yeah, you had like your, your extra pouches for darts and arrows and stuff, which, which was handy. I'll give you that. But overall, it was way too time consuming for, for very little gain. That's what I heard from a lot of people, so I'm glad I never bothered mm-hmm. with it. But it, <laughs> but that's what kept driving me to do the uh, the homestead stuff because you needed to, <laughs> as you did missions in the homestead, you would level up your crafters. So you needed a high level woodworker in order to get you know a really fancy cart to to send your goods into town. So it it, it made me keep doing the 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 homestead stuff in the hopes that I'd be able to make something cool. I just never could. <laughs> Oh, the sense of disappointment. It was crushing. <laughs> I mean, I have a bunch of Ben Franklin's <laughs> inventions littering the mansion. I'm like, what am I going to do with these things? Yeah, they look nifty. So what? <laughs> All right, but into the actual story of Connor himself. Uh, you're you're the big history nut, so I'm going to let you lead with how he they tied him in with the, the whole American Revolution. Oh, God, no. You should take that. <laughs> don't. Don't do that. Okay, do that. fine. <laughs> So it's interesting the way they did it, because as we saw with Ezio in the previous game, Ezio was all up in pretty much everything in the history of Europe. I mean, I, I think he, he fought us alongside Napoleon. He put down, you know, the Russian Revolution. Like, he was everywhere. <laughs> but Connor, he was always just kind of there in the story. Like, he was an outside observer to so many of the things. And there were some points where that lended itself really well, like having him be the uh, the motivating force behind the Boston Massacre. Like, he he's the reason, you know, the whole thing set off. Or being able to, oh, God, what was it? Uh, Charlestown, was it? The battle? Where he's a, a third force alongside the two fighting armies. That was fantastic. Running through the battlefield, dodging the cannon explosions. That was I mean, it was like saving Private Ryan, except you're a freaking Indian with a bow. <laughs> See, that I liked. I did not like, in the sort of history buff perspective, the whole he was the reason for the Boston Massacre. It, like, stuff like that. One of the things that I thought the other series did really, really well is that while the Assassins and the Templars were sometimes forces behind this, your character was never directly, like, the penultimate cause of something mm-hmm. happening like a major event he may be involved in the event he may help bring it to a close but the idea of having your character sort of be the reason a major history event like that occurred really was weird for me and, uh, and that's just again that's me the old history major talking but it was just weird for that i kind of would have liked to have him a little more removed from that i think what was awkward for me was Connor kind of standing around, you know, I, you think somebody would have noticed the weird, you know, Indian dude in the hood at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And like, yeah. like it was those small historical things that they, they just kept putting him in there. And I was like, that scene could have worked. It was like photo yeah, bombing. That scene could have worked perfectly well without the Declaration of Independence. You know, he didn't need to be there to be talking to John Adams and George Washington. And it was those little things like me, like having him, you know, help out in the battles and, you know, being at Valley Forge was so cool seeing, you know, all the all the uh, American troops, you know, huddled up in the cold and, and you know, George Washington just being freaking awesome. And they, they really made the historical characters 
accurate and yet at the same time larger than life, I think. Well, which fits with the characters, too. When you have people like, you know, Sam Adams and George Washington, they have to sort of live up to what we've kind of built them up as far as history is concerned. Like these are, for lack of a better term, paragons, right? These these are embodiments of ideals. Well, when they, they did them in this game, like you said, they made them sort of larger than life, but in a way that fit with what we have as sort of the American mythos of them. So like George Washington being this, you know, amazing, badass bastard fit because that's what we have for him as far as like a society's idea of him, which I think is I'm cool. blanking on the name. What was the name of the commander at uh, Charlestown? Oh, God. Yeah. OK, well, whatever his name was, he was freaking awesome. <laughs> it was like Arlie Ermey in the, in, in the American Revolution. He, he was for like the five minutes he was in the game. He was my favorite person. And he, he was like... um. Robert Duvall in, uh, uh, in um, God, Apocalypse Now, with the explosions going off all around, and you know, he's not phased. He doesn't care. Like that—that that was such an awesome character. But throughout all this, you had the interesting point of Connor really doesn't care about the American Revolution. Honestly, he doesn't—he he nope. doesn't care what flag is flying over the building. All he wants is to make sure his people are protected, and that was an interesting aspect of. Yeah, he really just backed whatever team best suited his interests. Well, it also lends a new idea to the whole, like, we've had this this pitted war, right? We've had this war where it's not just England and the Americas. Um, it's been Templars and Assassins. So to see a character who, you know, isn't just simply throwing his lot in with the exact opposition... There's a lot of gray lines in this game, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of gray areas where a lot of characters reside. Um, like I think it was what is it Daniel Cross? I think was the the other one. Yes, yes, we're gonna get to Cross in a bit. Yeah, but I mean, the, there's a lot of really really interesting gray areas in this game that really weren't existent in the other ones, which was intriguing. Mm-hmm. So as this plays out, you see that. Connor keeps trying to do what he feels is the right thing by by helping out the colonials against the British. And at so many turns in the story, what he thought was the right thing to do actually endangered his people even more. You know, taking de- you know, assassinating the the land baron. It's like, well, we come to find out he was just trying to buy up the land to protect the the native people. You know, he wanted to protect that land whereas the colonials just wanted to, you know, build another box on top of it so uh, this all comes to a head in what was by far the highlight of the game the team up between Haytham and connor we we, we see okay. the father and son together and i loved that entire portion of the game because well first of all it brought Haytham back into it and we, we we love Haytham. and seeing his his interactions with connor as you know connor wasn't the enemy Connor was just a young fool that, you know, Haytham was trying to sway and Connor kept making mistakes. And you could see like Haytham was getting so exasperated, like when the prisoner gets away and he just has that look on his face, <laughs> like, well, are you going to chase him or not? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> and the way they brought that story together of they really put, I don't even want to say a gray area. It was just a giant question mark now over really who was the good guy in this whole game, because not sure if he was telling completely the truth, but at least Haytham made a really good case that the Templars were kind of the good guys in this situation. 
Which is interesting to think of, too, especially when we've been talking about that a little bit earlier, where it's we've been so programmed through playing this game to just accept the Templars out of hand as the bad guys that it's sort of an interesting flip to have that that sort of, well, first of all, you know, such a strong character make that argument. You know, a, a strong, interesting character that you've grown to really like at this point starts talking about that and you can't hate the character. So you can't just like, Oh, it's this evil maniacal, you know, lies and, and perfidy. No, not so much. He, he's, he's actually got some solid logical points and it's like, well, shit, I didn't think of that. Mm-hmm. And after four and a half games by this point of just being indoctrinated that, you know, the assassins are the, are the right and the right the Templar are, are in the wrong. All they care about is dominating humanity. And yes, that's true. They they do want to be in charge. But ultimately, someone has to be in charge or you get chaos mm-hmm. like we see in the colonies. You know, the Indian tribes being trampled in between these two fighting armies. Whereas if we kind of just let Haytham do his thing, maybe a lot more people would still be alive. And I, I love that they put that doubt into Connor's mind. Well, it's also interesting because it's one of the first, I, I want to say, glimpses of interest you see from Connor, because he's been pretty bland. Mm-hmm. But to see that sort of that sort of question be raised and to see his, you know, pensiveness at it is good, I think. Unfortunately, it was kind of ruined by the fact that Charles Lee, who was uh, Haytham's second, turned out to just be a mm-hmm. monster on in and of himself. Like, Templar, assassin, colonial, British, it didn't matter. He was just a bad dude. And he was kind of the, 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 the fly that spoiled the ointment, where he was the one that Connor knew needed to go. And yet Haytham still trusted him. So that that's what brought everything to a point. And I think in the series, the final confrontation between Connor and Charles Lee was one of the best climaxes we've seen. Really? Well, I mean, when you're going against, like, the crazy pope compared to this, I mean, sure. Uh, the crazy pope is still <laughs> just a fat guy with a stick, so. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you know, we chasing him through the docks and the collapsing, you know, burning ship, which, God, that was freaking tough. I don't know about you, but I had to try that about 15 times before I figured out where to jump. Um. Yeah, we're not going to talk about how many times. <laughs> okay, very that. well then. <laughs> but the way it culminated with these two, you know, beaten, bloody, half-dead dudes sitting in a bar sharing a drink. Like, it, mm-hmm. That was so... like It was funny, but it, it kind of had that John McClane feel to it. Uh, of just, you know, like, this... Die yeah, this, this is right. <laughs> this is how it should... Yep. The, the, this is how the hero should look after a big battle. You know, he's not going to come through with his hair waving in the wind and, you know, his, his perfect white outfit still shining bright. No, he's going to get pretty jacked up. You just better hope the other guy is worse for the wear. Which is which is cool, and it was it was very. I, we've talked about this before, and I've used this very little lately, but it was a very cinematic moment, and I think that's kind of mm-hmm. cool. And of course, we find out that through all this, you know, Connor's people are still gone. You know, they they had to get away, so everything he was fighting for for the whole time really didn't matter. He had to kill his best friend. His mother died. You know, his tribe ended up having to move deeper into the woods, and presumably over the years they would be hunted down to extinction of themselves. So. For all the good Connor supposedly did, really, what what did he see out of it? And that's sort of the the weight that he'll have to carry. Mm-hmm. And that actually lends itself very well to the development of Desmond's story. And 
I, I've been the defender of Desmond for years now. People have like people have hated this dude. I'm like, no, he's he's a stupid character. Yeah, he's he's a jerk. I I, I don't want him around. <laughs> like I I wish it was somebody else, but he's the character that can really elevate the series. He's the one who can carry it. Like I was still really hoping for an entire Assassin's Creed game set in the modern day. And which might still be coming. Oh, of course. You never know. But and they came really close in a lot of the Desmond segments here of, you know, him scaling the building or uh, the scene in uh, the was it a football game, some sporting event or, or going after his father in Abstergo. Like they gave us mm-hmm. a lot of what we wanted. And I loved it. Like I kind of loved it and hated it at the same time, because when you're playing as Desmond, they made the cool choice to completely remove the entire interface from the game. Like, it was just you controlling a dude. There was no health bar. You know, there was no weapon. There was no... Even the, even the little flashing lights when the enemies are attacking, none of that was there. So you really had to apply what you learned from playing the game to controlling Desmond, which is kind of the whole meta thing that they're going on here, whereas Desmond had to take everything he learned from essentially playing Connor and Ezio and apply that to his own real life. And they came so close to making something that worked, it just it just fell short. Well, and there were some interesting hooks there, but you're right. I think it, it it could have been done a little bit better, but it's still good to see that they've been building off of that because as the character has been around, as Desmond's been doing his thing, so to speak, um, he's gotten better and better and better and deeper and deeper and deeper, and his reactions to things are are, are shifting. He's no longer the whiny bastard kid who doesn't know what the hell's going on anymore who people just hated he's actually starting to get some confidence he's starting to get some insight he's starting to learn from what's being unlocked inside of him and it's cool to sort of see that transition over the series of games Mm -hmm. like during the assassin's creed 2 arc i really like enjoyed the hell out of desmond well especially because there were so many crazy moments i mean the whole the whole storyline going on with lucy like that was very unexpected and we saw here they introduced another character to the game in cross who was a renegade assassin who is now working for the templar did you understand anything that was going on with that dude um here's what i understand about cross he almost killed the assassin's order he almost single-handedly from what I got from everything that was talked about him was responsible for the destruction of the assassins order, Mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. See, here's the thing about cross cross was actually the main character in the comic miniseries. They did assassins creed the fall. Yes. And that's why you kept seeing him breaking into Russian because his ancestor who was an assassin was fighting during the Russian revolution. It was a great comic series. Definitely check it out. I'm going to have and, to because I, I didn't read it. And the, the thing with the whole with you know him slipping into the Russian was the artifact that Alexei had found was so powerful. Like it kind of joined their personalities together across time. So like Alexei was actually having visions of the future at the same time as Cross was seeing the past. So it was some crazy stuff going on there. But it culminated with Cross being brainwashed by the Templar into joining the assassins like you know he was a sleeper agent the whole time until the moment where he met the mentor and the mentor is of course the leader of the assassin order and then he killed everyone so 
Yeah, the, the, the great purge, yeah. right? I mean, so Cross was a freaking badass and a cool character, but and I, I I love it when they bring characters from other aspects of the franchise into the games. But for someone who didn't read the comics, I, I have to believe that it was kind of awkward with everything that was going on. It, it was very jarring. Well, there's I wouldn't say jarring, confusing maybe, but not jarring. Like you didn't take you out of the world, but it made you go, I definitely missed something. Mm-hmm. Like there, there should be something here. And I think that's one of the major storytelling missteps Ubisoft had here was they should have at least kind of mentioned it. Even have Sean send you a freaking email to read, like instead of just, oh yeah, he's a bad guy. You know, there, there should have been something a little more intuitive to really bring cross into the game because he, he seemed very alien from a gameplay and a storytelling aspect. Yeah, I can see okay. that. So, of course, this now brings us to the end, where Connor, Connor, God, I'm going to keep doing that, where Desmond <laughs> it has finally uh, gathered, you know, all the pieces of the Triforce and can now power up the uh, the ancient machine. Yeah. And what was actually pretty cool, and I felt stupid because I actually missed this until about halfway through the game, was you could actually plug the batteries into the machine throughout the game. And I was like, I was just, I jumped all over the cave and I was like exploring. I'm like, okay, this is cool. <laughs> I didn't know, I, I did not stand in the one right spot I needed to stand in to actually put the battery into the machine. <laughs> so I got a whole lot of story all at once here. As as you're activating the machine, you have Juno, this ghost from you know the ancient civilization, speaking to you and giving you all the backstory to this. And they really spent a lot of time developing the backstory of this ancient civilization. And I was really into it at this point. I was like, okay, this is freaking awesome. You have all these characters, and you know they were the height of you know technological advancement, and they still couldn't save their race. I mean, it's something we've seen a million times across various bits of sci-fi and sure. fantasy. But it's never not cool, especially when you're giving it that you know that ancient alien flavor of you know these were the gods that the early humans worshipped. And yep, like, you know, yeah. You know. And as, as I said, personally, that's always something that's kind of interested me as just a storytelling quirk. So I was really into this. I was like, OK, now we're going to find out what's on the other side of this force field. Like, this is going to be crazy. This is going to be awesome. It's going to it's going to be the greatest thing ever. I I have very conflicted thoughts about this ending, so I'm kind of going to let you talk about it first while I still collect myself here. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the cool things, at least, I don't, I don't even know what the hell to begin with. Jesus. Okay, so we find out that, you know, because in the Ezio games, we were always communicating with Minerva, not Juno. Juno right. was a character that really established herself here in Assassin's Creed 3. So at the very end, Minerva herself shows up and is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't do that. If you do this, you will release Juno. She's, she's not a nice person. You know, she she was the evil one who who was perfectly happy to wipe out all of the humans in order to save themselves. Well, didn't didn't Minerva say something about the conquest of the world mm-hmm. headed by yeah. Juno? I think yeah, that Juno, was. Juno wanted their civilization to rule over all of the others, whereas mm-hmm. Minerva and, you know, the rest of them didn't see the humans quite as pets <laughs> as much as she did. So they, they wanted things to be a little more open, and it led to they finally had this solution, but at what cost? And 
they chose not to use it because they sealed Juno away, who was the only one that really wanted to, to use the solution because they didn't want to sacrifice everything else just to save themselves. But now here we are again in that same situation, and now Desmond is the one holding you know the trigger in his hand. What got me about this was sort of the um, Desmond had that weird – I don't even know what the word for it is. Um, when Minerva shows Desmond that if the sun unleashes the power, that he would basically become uh, this like uber-religious icon. And I thought that was awesome. That was very awesome, but it was very – I don't want to say awkward, but it's like I don't even know how the fuck I would react in that <laughs> <Seriously>? situation. <laughs> It's like, okay, so if I do this, I basically become a god. Kinda. But we find out that generations down the line, your teachings, being Desmond, who, who has become you know the leader of the human race at this point, all 15 of them who are remaining, his kickstarts the cycle again. His teachings will become corrupted, and it, yeah, it all starts all over again, where what he set out to initially see as a good thing ended up turning bad and actually hurting the people he was trying to protect. Whereas the alternative would just be to let Juno out and she would basically become, you know, an actual God and rule over earth. The world. But yeah. everybody would be safe. Everybody would be happy. And right there you have the core concept of the Assassin's Creed franchise of freedom versus control. And which is the right one to choose? Do you choose the freedom to live your own life knowing that eventually chaos will come from that or control and submit yourself to Juno and just live that life out as best you can? Or C, decide that you want to play God of War and decide that humanity is going to be better off. What? Fighting against the God. Which is pretty much what Desmond went with because he, he realized – he did not want, you know, to be, you know, the god, you know, if you will, you know, the the, the, mm -hmm. the mentor of the new race, and because he knew that eventually that would be the wrong path, where so he chose to set Juno free in the hopes that in time somebody would rise up against her and humanity would, you know, shake off their chains and go on with their lives, and that's what, like I said, that was very similar to the same concept we saw between Hatham and Connor, where Connor did everything he could in the name of freedom, in the name of giving people all these options. And at the end of the day, where did it get him? And I, I love how they made that storytelling story parallel to Desmond, that mm -hmm. he learned from Connor's experiences that the assassin's way probably actually isn't the best way. Which is one of those epiphany moments where you kind of go, he can be taught. <laughs> So, but when we were talking, you know, about the upcoming game, you you said you hoped the ending would be better. What didn't you like about the ending? It it was too. I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. Like, the, the wording here is a little weird. Yeah, and no, I, it was like watching a Sunday sci-fi movie, mm -hmm. and getting that really weird ending where it's like it's cool but at the same point you feel kind of cheap like i sort of expected a little bit more out of it than what we got okay although i did like the epilogue oh yes which we'll come back to i will admit that it wasn't a very well executed ending 
And mm-hmm. it, it was too much people standing around explaining stuff to you and instead of coming to these conclusions on your own. Like it was it was right. a whole lot of story that was just dumped on you at the last minute through exposition. And I do agree that that was a very you know ham-fisted way to go about it. But I, I still stand by that the actual concept oh, the content and was the cool. story of the ending was very strong. Yeah, I just don't like the idea of the the cheesy sci-fi like scrolling text with a voice reading it off to you type thing. It just it feels feels like you cheaped out. You see, I, I've seen so many people, you know, both online and you know my actual friends who have played the game, say saying that they felt that you know as a player we should have had the choice as to which ending to follow, but we're not talking. That's not the yeah. Type of we're, game. we're not talking Mass Effect here. At no point have our thoughts and our decisions as the player factored into Assassin's Creed story. Like it's been a ride from beginning to end. We at no point did we have any control over the steering wheel. Which is an interesting parallel between us playing as the character and the people that are involved in the sort of the storyline going through their ancestors, yeah. right? Like it's it's the world on rails. And there's a there's a definite beginning point and an end point that's already happened. We're just kind of playing through it. We are the vehicle through which we're we're sort of experiencing it. So I don't, I don't I know it sounds really cheesy, but I've always kind of made that connection with the game where it's like me playing this game as if I was like in the Animus reliving mm-hmm. this. And they executed that so brilliantly over the entire very. course of the series. It was it was a very meta experience. I, I going back to the first game because remember going into the first Assassin's Creed, we had no idea about Desmond. Every single bit of press was all about Altair, and you know you're you're living you know this guy's life in you know the ancient Middle East, and you're like okay, this is awesome. And then right out the bat, the beginning of the game, and it's something out of Star Trek going on here. You're like, who are these people? It, it was very disorienting, and uh, I'm glad I didn't have it ruined for me because it was crazy and insane. And honestly, I was not on board with it until the end. You know, after you finished uh, Assassin's Creed and you saw Desmond. Everything made sense. Activating the eagle vision and, you know, seeing the writings mm-hmm. on the wall. And that's that's when everything hit home of, my God, the scope of possibilities they have set up for this series. It, this could literally go anywhere. And it almost entirely did. And this is a series that could go on for generations and never repeat itself. And that is what I've always loved about Assassin's Creed. Well, especially because it has the potential to go beyond the current day, right? Like, we don't know the point with which they have planned up to already. But it seems like they've got a pretty good idea of what they want to do. I'm not so convinced about that. I I, I think there's a certain amount of uh, seat-of-their-pants piloting going on here. (laughs) But thus far, it's at least worked out, so... (laughs) But so Desmond made his decision. Some people weren't happy. You know, again, I I agree that it could have been handled better. We're we're kind of in that 2012 was the year of bad endings (laughs) of things that had great concepts and really could have worked out well. Poorly executed. Needed a little bit more time and planning. But you mentioned the epilogue to Connor's story, which was very powerful as just a, a general statement, again, as to the entire concept of what they're doing here, right? Well, there's a lot of symbolism in it, too, right? Like, the part where he's going through and uh, taking the portraits of the Templar members, right? And he's burning them. And it's this very powerful symbolism because it's supposed to be 
like an end of a journey, right? It's supposed to be the end of the, the swan song. So he's sort of bringing that chapter to a close for himself. Like he's he's getting sort of an amount of closure, which really in most of these games the players haven't had. So it was kind of an interesting little little uh, twitch. Also, it's kind of interesting to see where he went back to his home village, right? And what does he find out while he's there? Well, you find out that the United States government, yay, has sold the land that his village rested upon to settlers to settle war debts. After everything he's been through, how the hell do you think that makes him mm-hmm. So now he, he goes to what? He goes to New York City, and he watches the last of the British leave America for good. Uh, it also is the same part where he sees evidence of the slave trade starting to come in. And right next to the pier uh, are the citizens cheering for the departure of the British at the same point that the beginnings of the slave trade is starting to really, really come in, mm-hmm. which is kind of a very powerful sign, a symbol right there. Very powerful moment. As, as what exact freedom was everybody fighting for if that's the end result? Mm-hmm. And that that was a very powerful statement that I I'm actually impressed they had the balls to you know go for, but like, they're Canadian. They they kind of have, you know, that's what they do. I'm happy. Yeah, they no, I, I, I really, really and we am. saw that actually running throughout the game again with Achilles. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he it was very awkward for him to go into town because, yeah, he it, he, he was at one point presumably a slave himself, and you know gained his freedom and you know this and that. So. It was while he had every right to be in town, it was still very awkward for him to be in town. Or even um, when Connor was working with Sam Adams, Connor straight up asked mm-hmm. him, he's like, why do you keep these people as slaves if you, you, you say to fight for freedom? And you know, Sam Adams was like, yeah, you know, it kind of sucks, but we have more important things to worry about right now. You know, we'll, we'll get to that when we have time for it. Like, it, it was so awkward, but it was supposed well, to be. And then that's the thing, like, from a historian standpoint, right? A lot of these famous people that had slaves, and and if anybody's going to get bored, I'm sorry, but if you stuck with us, give me just a couple more minutes. Um, Look at Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a brilliant man, often hailed as one of the greatest founding fathers of this country, right? He owned slaves. And he was also pressed at the time when people would ask him about that, when he would talk about freedom and liberty and the fact that he owned slaves, he would always brush aside, we have more important things to do. And this became a very common theme among any of the high-profile founders that happened to own slaves. And it became this thing where they kept trying to push it off, brush it off, push it off, brush it off, because they didn't want to deal with it. And it was very interesting to see sort of that kind of come over into this, right? So it was I was very happy to kind of see that a little bit because that is historic fact. That is something that was you can go through all of their their writings and any lessons on them and see that those are topics that those important people did in fact brush off regularly trying to talk about a grander scheme because they didn't want to talk about it at all. Mm. And I it worked so well. Like I said, that it did in the core concepts of the series of, of freedom of thought, free, freedom of action, and what many people look back as one of the greatest moments in history for that freedom still had its own skeletons in the closet to deal with. And the, like I said, the way everything blended together between Connor's narrative and Desmond's narrative was very, very well handled. And it, it was a very good close to the proper Assassin's Creed 
series because they they always said they had these three main games and everything else just kind of built up around it and now they're going with something new right and we saw that something new i will agree with that yes we did and how awesome was that something new all i have to know is when you open the trailer with blackbeard talking about how badass and scary your pirate captain assassin character is going to be you have my attention <laughs> well said because when i finished assassin's creed 3 the first thing i said was okay well that was cool the second thing i said was they need to take that engine that they used for the privateer segments and just make a pirate game out of it it just ubisoft give me a pirate game i will play it i didn't think they were going to listen <laughs> Well, the thing is, you're not the only one that said that. <laughs> <laughs> that has been something that people have been saying and saying and saying since stepping foot in the boat, minus anybody who's been seasick from you know playing the game. But still, it's just the, the entire concept of having a game where I get to play as a fucking badass assassin pirate. Oh my god, I'm, I'm so excited for but this. But not only that, the pirate you're playing, because this game takes place uh, early in the 18th century, several decades before Assassin's Creed 3 is Edward Kenway, the father of Haytham. Yes. So come to find out that Haytham, who was a Templar, who we thought was an assassin at the beginning, his father was an actual assassin. I I can't even begin to think where this storyline is going to go. But that's going to be the awesome Oh, part, yeah. Right? I'm glad. That's good. Okay, so, so you have the father of a very incredibly badass character that you've already gotten to experience and play and sort of get to know and love and hate and, and feel very strong feelings about. And now you get his dad and you have to wonder what happened there between father and son. Cause you know, there's going to be something there that allowed sort of the, the brainwashing to sort of take place. Right. Mm-hmm. There has to be something there. And that's what, like, I'm intrigued now. I'm intrigued to find where these points line up and where I can draw my line back. Oh, God, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> and I'm I'm actually interested to see where they bring the modern-day aspect of this into it. Because De- Des- Desmond's off the board at this point. Yes. Now... Well, as far as we know, Desmond's yeah. off the board. I the, the obvious choice would be Desmond's father. Because, you know, it's all, it's all the same bloodline there. So that's a possibility. But somebody else also pointed out that they could go in a different direction with this. Because in uh, Assassin's Creed Liberation, the PS Vita game that came out, the modern day equivalent was an Abstergo agent yes. who was basically using using stolen memories to, to delve into that. So that's an option they could go with. And to see how this assassin character, you know, led into the formation of a a top Templar agent, that could be something that Abstergo would be very interested in in learning about. And also give us a very interesting dynamic, especially if we start opening up the fact that Abstergo has been stealing memories and implanting them and reliving them using the Animus process. There's no telling what we can actually get out of, like, storyline as far as, like, past and present and all everything in between it's such a cool concept it really really is and the the one thing that i've always come back to with this series is 
I think it was Assassin's Creed 2 in when he goes down into the crypt. And I think it's when he gets mm-hmm. Altair's armor is what it was. Yes. And you had all the statues of all these other famous assassins in Egypt, in China, Japan, you know, all these formative times throughout the world. And like I said, it gives the franchise so much freedom to go anywhere they want. And seeing how they meld this into it, because I, I don't want to just keep exploring this one bloodline over and over again. Because I think we're we're already stretching the limits of believability as to, you know, how many important historical moments can, you know, this one dude's granddad be involved with. So I, I, I'm hoping that this, this next game is going to give them the opportunity to branch out. Which would be good for the franchise as a whole. Keep it mm-hmm. fresh. And just kind of as a point of closure... How freaking awesome is Edward Kenway? Just look, look at, you know, you see him in the trailer and in the posters. Dude's got like six guns, three swords. It, this is, you know, an assassin designed by Rob Liefeld, but it makes without the weird anatomy. Yeah, but it it makes such perfect sense because he's an assassin. He's a trained killing machine, but he's also a pirate. And with all of the mystique that comes with that and, you know, just a sheer force of intimidation and you know, wanting to have as much offensive capability around his body at any given time. Because, uh, you you know, once you jump onto that other ship, you have no idea what's going to happen. You're not going to have time to reload your flintlock pistol that just Edward's profile and visual storytelling in and of itself is enough for me. <laughs> Have you read any of the information that they've released on his biography? No, very, very little. Do you not want to have it oh, spoiled? Oh, go for, for it. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. He, the reason that he became a pirate actually has to do with his wife. <laughs> so he marries Carolyn Scott, a woman who's older than him, and he has a daughter, which I'm sure this is going to be inter- this is going to be important later. Uh, Jenny Kenway, um, she kind of Carolyn kind of gets pissed at him because he can't find steady work, and she thinks he's not taking his responsibilities as a husband seriously. Um, though it was uh, Edwards, really his idea to sail as a privateer in the West Indies to try to bring back the fortune in gold, and while trying to do that, basically living up to his wife's. Uh, expectations trying to provide for his family and basically make his angry wife happy that's what winds up destroying the marriage so that's when he starts investing himself fully into um the privateer life right so it's kind of cool to see where it's like his family is is sort of splintered and broken which can have very interesting ramifications for later games or in truth what's happening here because if he has a daughter and a son, there's more than one bloodline to follow now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the idea that this is what pushed him into becoming the privateer in the first place is really, really, really interesting. And there are some stuff uh, that I'm uh, purposely avoiding that revolves around him and Haytham's uh, interaction that they did release when Haytham was a small child that helped push things along. Um, uh-huh. uh, so I'm not going to ruin that part yet because I don't want to read it myself. But they do actually have a complete character biography available for Edward, Edward Kenway. You are tempting me. I know. It's, I found it by accident like three days ago. 
But it's sort of it's it's just interesting to see the character already has that level of torment on top of everything else, but it never actually talks about how he becomes an assassin. Like they don't really right. talk about that at all. So it's kind of what came first, the assassin or the privateer. Very interesting. I'm only hoping for one other thing in this game, and that is to see a young Achilles Davenport in his prime. Because this would be about yes. this right time period. Well, yeah, that would definitely be about the right time period. So if they can bring that in, Ubisoft, I thank you ahead of time. Because clearly, you either listen to our shows or you're reading my mind. Because I, I don't know of any other way they could have come up with this game series or any of the developments therein. Because for both of us, the Assassin's Creed franchise has just been tailor-made for all of our interests and all the things we find cool and awesome in life, in history, in, in our world, and brought it into what is our favorite storytelling medium of video games. And, and for for that reason, above any other, Assassin's Creed will, will go down as probably one of my favorite game franchises of all time at this point. Absolutely. It's, it is up there with like the greats like Zelda. So, I mean to secure a spot in that that sort of prestigious lineup that I have, congratulations. Also, the fact that they're doing such a wonderful job that I'm not sitting there yelling at my screen that this is wrong, this should not be happening. Do you ever read a fucking history book? So the fact that I'm not doing that, kudos, guys, because you're doing a wonderful job, and I can't wait to see what else comes out. So thanks for listening, watching, however you're consuming this particular episode. If you liked it, uh, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or keep following us on our website, internetdragons.tv. You can also find us on Twitter, at internetdragons. And until next time, thanks for watching. Bye, guys!